Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Right now, though, I want to talk about waiting and waiting and waiting for health care in this province. And this is very much tied to a number of the topics we've had on the program today, including the meeting that the First Minister said yesterday with the Prime Minister saying we need more money uh, for health care. But uh, how is that being spent? I mean, waiting for treatment has become a defining characteristic of the Canadian health care system these days. In order to document the uh, the cares for the visits to specialists and for diagnostic and surgical procedures in this country, the Fraser Institute has, for over two decades now, surveyed specialist physicians about 12 specialties and provinces. Uh, the report is called Waiting Your Turn, and the latest edition of it is out. And, uh, well, we want to get some analysis on that. And to that end, uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program Bacchus Barua, who is the Associate Director of Public Policy with the Fraser Institute. Mr. Barua, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us here today. Good morning, and thank you for having me on the show. As long as I can recall, uh, just about every election, uh, whether it's federal, provincial, local, whatever it is, anybody that wants to get elected to public office says, "I'm going to, I'm going to shorten wait times. You elect me, and I'm going to, I'm going to do that for you." Uh, The report that uh, that's out right now from the Fraser Institute, we're we're going the wrong way here. Yeah, you know, I mean, that that sounds like promise that's never really been backed up by actual um, delivery in terms of policy change. Um, Essentially, what we've seen for um, I would say two to three decades is policy inertia. You know, we're trying to throw money at the problem. We have um, wait time strategies that are focused on one or two areas. But overall, the data is showing that none of this has really worked. Um, in 1993, when we calculated the first national estimate of wait times, the wait time between getting a referral to uh, seeing a specialist to actually getting treatment was about 9.3 weeks in Canada. This year, we measured that same wait time at 22.6 weeks. So clearly the data is showing that none of that has really worked. And the reason is very simple, because no one's actually looked at a change in policy. You break this down, and I think very effectively, into two basic areas here. A referral from a general practitioner, in other words, your family doctor, for instance, to a consult with a specialist. There's a wait time for that. And then part two of that, of course, is, is the consultation with the specialist to the point where there's actually going to be some treatment for that. And uh, what, when you add those up together, uh, it's an inordinate amount of time. Pain and suffering, is, as you mentioned, there's a human cost to this too, isn't there? That's right. Um, you know, for a long time, a lot of the provinces were only focusing on what's called the second part of the wait, which is the appointment from a specialist to getting treatment. Um, and that wait time is about 12.1 weeks. Uh, but when we actually look at the first half of the wait, how long does it actually get, uh, how long does it actually take to get a consultation with the specialist in the first place? That wait can be as much as 10.5 weeks in, in, um, in 2020. So there's a significant amount of time that it takes just to get to see your specialist in the first place, never mind things like diagnostic tests, et cetera. Um, of course, Ontario does have um, a quite a good wait times website now. Um, after a lot of work. But this is something that's you know very difficult to look at across Canada because for a long time, provinces simply weren't actually measuring wait times and they weren't measuring, measuring it in a consistent manner either across years or between provinces. And so provincial comparisons are, different, uh, are difficult. Uh, comparisons over time to see how well or how poorly you're doing were different. Um, and unfortunately, the result is that a lot of patients are waiting for care. And absolutely, there is a cost to waiting time. These are not just benign inconveniences. Well, some patients can and do wait for treatment without significant consequences. Many others will be in pain. Many others will be suffering. Many others will see their condition deteriorate while they're waiting for care for something that might be might have been treatable, but now has become a debilitating condition. So it's, it's important for us to remember that these are not just statistics. These are reflecting the actual experiences of people in our healthcare system. 
Well, for somebody who's in a position like that, uh, God forbid, and, you know, the condition gets worse uh, from, uh, you know, bothersome to chronic in situations like that, uh, I, w- I would think that's going to affect the outcome of whatever medical procedure is about to follow it, so whenever that does happen. Yeah, there have been quite a few, you know, individual studies that are done that do show that, um, and these are, you know, in, in terms of hospital-level studies. Um, we ourselves in the response have looked at the overall effect on mortality and have found a significant effect. Um, we were only able to find that statistical relationship when it came to the female population. But, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, the health outcomes are, are one aspect of the situation. There can also be an economic cost uh, in terms of the, the weeks of, the, of the, uh, sorry, the, in terms of the hours of the week that are lost um, that could have otherwise been productive. Um, and there's simply just, you know, the, the mental anguish while you're trying to figure out when you will actually get treated for this condition that you're waiting for. And all of this would, you know, potentially be okay if you're saying, you know, here's a wait time in the public system if you had an alternative. The problem is in Canada, we don't really have an alternative within our borders. Yeah, which is the debate that's been going on for quite some time. I mean, here in southern Ontario, the, the you know the plan B here is always to hop across the border to Buffalo, New York, uh, and see what you can get there. And I, I know people that have actually done that. Uh, and, and it's about time, I guess, that we have to have a discussion about this. And, and I, I don't know if we're ready. I, I, the research that you've done on this, uh, is there an appetite right now? Because I know that this seems to be a very polarizing issue between a hybrid model uh, that some people are suggesting a bit, or the... Uh, the, 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 well, the model we've been using, I guess, since about 1964 here in Canada, which is essentially uh, public health care for all and, and, you know, no jumping the queue. Uh, everybody just is, is treated pretty much the same. You know, I think one of the unfortunate things about the conversation in Canada is that we tend to have a conversation about Canada versus the United States. And that's a very narrow view of what policy options are on the table. Um, our research, you know, when we look at other countries around the world, we find that there are at least 27 other countries with universal health care that, uh, that all share the same goal of universal health care. Uh, these are countries like, you know, Australia, Sweden, Germany, France, Switzerland. Um, and all of them in general, uh, sorry, not all of them, but there's, there's a set of countries that tend to have shorter wait times. They spend about the same as we do and share that same goal. And I think one of the things that we could start with is to look at what do these countries actually do differently? How do they share the same goal? What do they do differently that results in shorter wait times than we see in Canada? But there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of drive to want to do that, though. I mean, you know, I, I know there was a period of time not too long after the 1964 when this, our system, as it was, uh, was put in place that we thought, well, we have the best healthcare system in the world. And, and you know, that, that's debatable, I suppose. Uh, we don't anymore. Uh, you know, as, as your study indicates, uh, Scandinavian countries, the UK, Australia, so many other places do it better than we do. Why aren't we lo- watching them and why aren't we learning from them? You know, a lot of what um, provinces can and cannot do is tied to the Canada Health Act. Uh, yeah. And despite despite how it's portrayed, the Canada Health Act is really a financial tool, which dictates the terms and conditions that provinces have to follow in order to get federal transfers. Um, and, you know, it's worded in such a way that it leads to a very risk-averse approach amongst the provinces. They're often quite scared to experiment lest they get penalized for um, for trying something that might contravene the CHA. And that's resulted in an environment where essentially policy has stayed the same for the longest time. It's a situation where we're doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Um, there have been some movements um, in certain provinces. Uh, Saskatchewan's one particular example where 
Um, in about 2008, um, they started something called the Saskatchewan Surgical Initiative. Sorry, they started that in, in 2010. Um, and, and they did they did two things that were very interesting. Um, the first is they started a pooled patient referral system. That essentially meant that um, everybody who needs to, uh, to, to get a referral, they're put into a centralized pool and they're connected with the physician who has the shortest wait time. And of course, you know, if, physician, if, if patients or physicians wanted a different physician, that would be that would be fine as well. And if they wanted to wait longer, the other thing that they did is they actually started contracting services um, to private third-party clinics, um, and that was just a way to augment the public system while still staying within the confines of the Canada Health Act. Now, what happened in Saskatchewan is, you know, till about 2008, they had the, some of the longest wait times in Canada. It was 28.8 weeks, and um, I think in 2010 it was 26 weeks when when that system started. By the end of that um, uh, process in 2014 and 2015, they actually had close to the shortest wait times in Canada at about 14 and 13 weeks. The only time um, that we've recorded shorter wait times than, than Ontario, which traditionally has uh, shorter wait times than the rest of the country like Quebec. And, you know, this was a clear experience where, you know, they implemented something new. They actually looked at a difference in policy and it did work. Unfortunately, it was a band-aid solution because the thing is it was still within the confines of the CHA, within the confines of what uh, the public system can fund. And again, wait times have grown in that province as well. So, you know, I, I think that's one start that, that some provinces could take. But if you really wanted to look at change, you'd have to look at what does Germany actually do differently that leads to shorter wait times? What do Switzerland and the Netherlands do differently? Um, and I think when you start to do that, then the, then the answers become a little bit clearer even if they're a little bit more contentious. But, I mean, I, I don't want to say we're living in the past, but, I mean, we're essentially we're trying to deliver a 2020 healthcare model with a 1964 body. I mean, you know, with a, you know, aside from a couple of minor tweaks, this is basically the system that was started uh, way back in 1964. And, and I know there have been some minor changes about, you know, pay in and, and things of that nature. You know, initially we had to pay for service on an annual basis, and in Ontario anyway, and that's changed now. Uh, but but it's, it's, it hasn't evolved uh, the way that many other countries have evolved their systems absolutely and and you know you see that in in many different instances you know for example where we once had some of the the highest ratios of physician to to population uh, we actually now have some of the lowest ratios of that uh, we currently also have um, the low, uh, some either the second lowest or the lowest ratio of beds per capita compared to these 27 other countries with the universal health care um, and of course, we have the longest wait times. And you know, to be clear, this is not for want of funding. We actually rank amongst the highest spenders. Um, but there's a clear imbalance between what we're paying for the system and what we actually get out of it. Um, but again, you know, if we look at those countries that are succeeding, that are spending about the same, sometimes a little bit more, like Switzerland, sometimes a little bit less, like Australia, Germany, we see that they do three things very differently. One is that they have a very different attitude towards the private sector. They see the private sector as a partner in order to deliver on the universal healthcare promise, or they see it as an alternative, as a pressure valve to help alleviate some of the stress and burden on the public system when it's overburdened. They also have a very different attitude towards cost sharing. Um, they generally expect patients to share some portion of the cost of their treatment directly, um, either through a copay or a deductible. And of course, they have um, annual limits to ensure that these are never financial burdens on populations, but while still understanding that they provide strong incentives to use these very scarce resources efficiently. And the third is that they fund hospitals based on activity. Um, in Canada, we're still mostly on a global budget model, um, which, you know, it, to 
to put it in an economic sense, it makes hospitals see patients as a cost because they're eating into the, the, the budget of the hospital. Whereas when they're funded according to activity, the hospital gets funded for every new, serve, new patient that they serve. Now, it's not to say that any one of these things are going to magically fix Canada or Ontario's healthcare system, but it's certainly some combination of them that has led to much shorter wait times, more resources for about the same spending in these other countries. Is there an appetite for change, though? I, I mean, the, the powers that be, the decision makers, uh, see uh, that uh, that there's it's time to to move forward on this and look at some of these other initiatives. You know, that's uh, you'd have to ask the powers that be that question <laughs> because, because I'm, I'm not aware of that. What I can say is that you know, over time, I think Canadians are far more informed of how our healthcare system is doing with with the reports that we do. Um, which are corroborated again by international reports that are starting to come out by the Commonwealth Fund, which shows that Canada lies significantly behind other countries. Um, I think we're hopefully better aware that we don't really just have to have this conversation about a Canadian versus American system. And we're also aware, I think, a little more aware of the fact that there are other countries with universal health care. And it doesn't have to be a situation where we have to fundamentally change the universal nature of our healthcare system, but we need to think about how do we better do universal health care? What are these policies that might work in a Canadian context and hopefully move forward on those? Well, and that seems to be at least part of the solution here to have that conversation. And, and, and you're right. I mean, the initial thing seems to be, and maybe it's a political uh, element to it, that, you know, just throw money at it. Uh, because politicians tend to think in short terms, in three, four-year terms, which coincide nicely with their elections results. But uh, we, we need something that's going to be a, a much more long-term and, and have a foundation for this. And uh, it's 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 going to take some some radical thinking and some people that are going to try to, to, to be innovative about this and maybe that's what they're missing how uh, when you look at these numbers and and, and the, the procedures that are going on things like mris and i know that a lot of our listeners are getting emails right now how about this emma what about mris what about this what about the uh, what about joint replacements uh, they're all in there i know you've done a lot of research about how each one of these is is being impacted by this system uh but we're looking at overall change here i because you're right i think there has been targeted uh, at, attempts in the past to say we want to do something about joint replacements and you know there's been some movement on some of that stuff in different parts of the country but this is this is a, a much broader perspective that i think we need to take isn't it absolutely and you know while it's important to to, to sit down and tackle certain areas what where there are the longest waits it can lead to a situation where only that area starts to get measured and everything else kind of falls by the wayside which is why you know for these 30 years We've looked at 12 different specialties consistently. Um, these are non-emergency surgeries, so we're not looking at people who are going to the emergency room in crisis mode, but everybody essentially is trying to get a scheduled surgery. So these are looking at things like ophthalmology, general surgery, but also things like radiation, medical oncology. And we do see, obviously, variation. We see that you know radiation, medical oncology have shorter wait times, about four and a half weeks, and much, much longer wait times for things like orthopedic surgery, which are 34 weeks. And, you know, it's showing us that Canada's healthcare system is doing what it's supposed to in terms of triaging patients. Um, the problem is that, you know, while we're able to help everybody who, who, um, who need urgent care, we're completely unable to help everybody else, and everybody else is essentially forced to, you know, have a wait of, I think, what is it, 34 weeks on average in Canada for orthopedic surgery and similar wait times for things like um, otolaryngology. Neurosurgery is 33 weeks in Canada. And I think, you know, that really puts things into perspective. And then you couple that with things like, and you know, the MRI wait time, it's 11 weeks on average in Canada, five weeks for a CT scan. And then that actually starts to mess with 
um, that triage system as well, because if you can't accurately diagnose the severity of a patient's condition, your ability to triage will also be affected. So this is a long system-wide problem. Um, and, you know, I should say, you know, obviously these numbers have been affected um, by, by the current pandemic. But the thing is, all, all we have to do is just look one year prior. When we look in 2019, before the pandemic ever started, the total wait time was 20.9 weeks, which is, you know, about two weeks shorter mm-hmm. than it is right now. So this is a long problem that's 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 occurred for a long time, and it has been exacerbated by the current pandemic, but it's not because of it. Uh, the report is called Waiting Your Turn, Wait Times for Healthcare in Canada, the 2020 report uh, by the Fraser Institute. We've only scratched the surface here. Uh, you should go and uh, Google that and get the rest of the results. Uh, Bacchus Barura, thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on the show for this discussion. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.